And you can take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Never did I think we'd do so many sermons in the book of James. We started this sermon series back in March, I think, and I was like, yeah, this will be a short little brief thing, you know, maybe, you know, seven sermons or something like that. We're on summer number 19 right now, Uh, (laughs) and it's been a rich journey through the book of James, I think. At least it has been for me. Uh, So much wisdom from God is loaded into a small five-chapter letter that James wrote to a scattered collection of struggling churches, helping them to see the ramifications of the gospel, helping them to see that faith works, uh, that if you're a real Christian with real faith, then that's really going to transform how you live. On the flip side, to claim to believe and yet not uh, seek to live for God at all is a demonstration not of saving faith, but of a useless faith, workless faith, is worthless. What's more, faith works through suffering. And James's goal is to help his audience see that the trials they're going through are not random and they're not coming from a God that is mean and cruel, but are actually being brought into their lives. These trials are being brought into their lives according to um, a, a good God who has wise purposes and plans for their lives. James has taught us that times of suffering, times of great difficulty, are instruments of God's grace that will produce in us steadfastness, patient endurance that leads to greater depths of spiritual maturity and greater Christ-likeness. And so God's purpose for the trial is not to curse us, but to bring forth maximum blessing from God in, um, in our lives to be experienced in part now, but the fullness of those blessings will be enjoyed at the very end of this life when we finally stand before God at whom, whose right hand we find pleasures forevermore. And so James says in chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Suffering now will give way to glory later. And so James says in chapter 5, Be patient, therefore, brothers, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And now as we approach the end of this book, we, we began to see last week that it's not just that faith works, but that faith works together. Uh, we will not endure and persevere through the trials of life in isolation. Uh, living the Christian life alone, keeping other believers at arm's length uh, uh, is not God's plan for us. And what the Lord's about to say to you this morning through His Word, uh, to some of you, this is going to be a challenge but I pray that you'll have ears to hear the Word and that you will not just be hearers of the Word, but you will, as James talked about earlier in the book, you'll be doers of the Word as well and be transformed by it. So let's find out more about what James has to say. Please stand with me out of honor and reverence for the reading of the words of our God. We're in James chapter 5, and um, Though we'll be focusing just on the last few verses of James 5, let's start reading back in verse 13 just to get the larger context of this passage. Word of God says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruits. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that this is not just any word, and we recognize that this is not any book. This is your holy and inspired word, and it is a word that the Spirit speaks to the Harbin's Community Baptist Church this morning. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and, and a receptive heart. I pray that you would transform us and impact us through the power of your living word, not through Deemer's word, but your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Individualism is taking a toll on Americans. American culture has confined us to our solitary bubbles through the emphasis on individualism and self-sufficiency. We're all imprisoned in tiny, solitary confinement bubbles that wreak havoc on our relationships and on our health. So wrote Leah Bow in an article entitled, Why the Devil Loves American Individualism. Uh, This American drive for individualistic autonomy isn't just a phenomenon out there in the world. It's also affected the American church. Many professing Christians would echo the sentiments of a culture that says that faith is a private matter between them and God. Uh, We talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Uh, We love Bible verses about Christian liberty and pursuing and honoring God according to our own conscience. And while we may give lip service to accountability, many Christians bristle at the idea of another believer confronting him or her about possible sin in their lives. Uh, We prefer to keep everything personal and private and comfortable. It's the American way. But Christianity isn't just a personal religion with a faith that works personally for you. Instead, faith works together in the context of a community, a group, a family set apart for God and for God's glory. Now, James is writing here to a group of churches that if they are a family, they are a highly dysfunctional one, as they're experiencing significant disunity and, uh, and plagued with division and individualism and selfish ambition and quarreling because they aren't getting their own way. The trials and tribulations that these churches are going through uh, 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 are bringing out the very worst in them. Uh, They aren't being steadfast and patient in their suffering. They're instead biting and devouring one another in their frustration. Uh, With the pressures of life in a fallen world bearing down on them, with with people persecuting and oppressing them, and, and with even satanic attacks and temptations, and with their own sin tugging at their hearts, there's absolutely no way that they can be faithful and steadfast in their trials, dealing with them in a godly way without each other. That's why both this week and last week's sermon are entitled, Faith Works Together. 
I don't know if I've ever done this before. This is essentially a four-part sermon stretched out across two weeks. And we, will, we spent all of last week um, talking about the first point of that sermon, uh, namely that faith works together as the people of the church are leaning on the ministry of their shepherds. Now, I won't belabor this. You can listen to last week's sermon online for more on this, but in brief, uh, James in verses 14 and 15 is encouraging those who are sick, and I argued last time that that's more appropriately translated as weak, spiritually weak, weak in faith. The word for sick in verse 15 is translated from a word primarily used to describe the weariness of the soul. And James says those who are worn out and struggling and beaten down through the trials of various kinds who are so down and discouraged that they can't even obey verse 13, which says if you're suffering, pray to God for help. James encourages such sufferers uh, uh, to not keep their pain and their struggle private. Don't bottle it up, he says. Uh, Open up. Call your elders, the pastors of the church, have them come and encourage you and minister to you and counsel you and pray for you. And James says that the prayers of the pastors and the humble confession of sin on the part of the sufferer will raise them up. It'll bring a restoration of spiritual strength and encouragement. So, so we see a faith that works together as the people of God are leaning on the ministry of their shepherds. We also see that faith works together uh, as the people of the church are accountable to one another through honest confession. That's the second point in this sermon, accountable to one another through honest confession. James says in verse 16, "'Therefore, confess your sins to one another.'" So let me ask you this. Do you want to grow in Christ? Do you want to guard yourself from spiritual weakness? Do you want to be faithful and steadfast through your trials and afflictions? I'd assume all of us would say yes to those, and all of the hands in here would go up, and that's great. But then answer this question. Are you, on a regular basis, honest and open about your sins with other believers in this church? And I think in my mind's eye, I see many hands going down now, including my own. Could this be one of the most neglected commands in the Bible? Could it be one of the most neglected commands at Harbin's church? James here connects our spiritual health and vitality with the confession of sin, and not just to the pastor, not just to the elders of the church. Look closely here. He says, confess your sins to one another. James has a vision for a community where mutual confession of sin is taking place, where all the members of the church are confessing sins to one another to their brothers and sisters in the congregation. Now, that means that we aren't supposed to be coming here for 90 minutes a week and putting on fake plastic smiles and pretending that everything is okay and is great all the time and we just have it all together, appearing to be holier than we really are as we put up a good front for everybody else. Instead, we are to be real and honest with one another about the things that we are struggling with. The Puritan Thomas Manton writes that James is particularly referring here to those sins that most wound the conscience and that our confession benefits us, and that it helps others move towards us with actions of spiritual relief, such as giving godly counsel and offering appropriate prayers. Uh, The kinds of… here we're talking about the kinds of sins uh, that we are least likely to want to share. Those are the things that we should be uh, most aggressive about sharing. 
It's those sins that, that come back to haunt you. It's those sins that you just can't seem to get victory over that plague your conscience continually and it's causing you real spiritual weakness. Some of you right now have, have things that are coming to your mind. Maybe it's an explosive temper that you just can't get a handle on. Maybe it's gossip. Maybe it's lust in your pornography addiction. Maybe it's covetousness. Maybe it's something that you feel like you're in such bondage in and and you want to be delivered from it, but you're so scared to tell anybody about it that you just hide it away, you tuck it away. Friend, that's actually the first thing that you should be confessing. Now you say, well, Deemer, do I have to tell everyone? Not necessarily, especially if it's a more private thing. You don't have to come up here on stage and spew all of your garbage. I don't think that's what James is talking about here. Instead, find a mature man of God. Find a mature woman of God and open up to that person and be real and honest and transparent, maybe for the first time in years, maybe the first time ever. There there are those in this congregation who spent years battling secret sin And they never really experienced a true spiritual breakthrough until they opened up to somebody here and confessed it and finally got help dealing with it. And you won't either experience that breakthrough unless you make that move. Because isolation is spiritually deadly. And when I say isolation, I don't mean that you're not coming to church. There's lots of people who come to church every Sunday, but they are nevertheless isolating themselves from others in the sense that they, they're content with superficial relationships, uh, superficial conversations. They don't have to be vulnerable about their spiritual weakness and sin. And we can, we can get that way because of pride. We're worried about what other people think. We don't want to look bad. We're afraid of people treating us differently if they knew that about me. All that is, all that's fear of man. You fear man more than you fear God. But the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. So don't get caught in that. The Bible says in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. Never helps. It only makes things worse. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, Life Together, wrote that sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. But confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly autonomy. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and allows the free flow of grace in the community. Notice what Bonhoeffer is saying there. Not only does this affect the individual believer, for better or for worse, but it impacts the health and strength of the entire community. I find it very ironic. Christians all the time talk about how they want honest, authentic community. They want a church where they feel a sense of of family and togetherness. But many times, these same Christians are unwilling to have conversations with other believers about the deadly sins that are lodged in their hearts. The kind of community that we long for will never happen if we remain in self-protection mode, concealing our sin from others. Again, Bonhoeffer writes, and and by the way, this this is amazing what he writes. I want you to listen to this very carefully. He says, he who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. 
It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, and all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout, as sinners. He goes on to say, the pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. That is a dynamite quote right there. And I'm convinced that one of the biggest strategies of Satan for Harbin's church is to isolate us and for us to never deeply open up to anyone here and never really get involved in anybody else's life. If you're alone with your sin, like the woman at the well that Jesus met in John chapter 4, do you remember that story? And Jesus knows what's going on in her heart, but she's content with surfacey, shallow conversations, even with religious theological conversation, if it can be a smokescreen to cover what's really going on in her life. But Jesus in that story was cutting through all of that pretense to expose the sin that she was concealing from him, uh, bringing it out into the light for her spiritual healing. Now, if you are alone in your sin, tied up in a concealed ongoing kind of sin that's sapping all your spiritual energy and strength and peace and joy from your life, guess what? It doesn't matter how often you come to church or what Bible studies you're in or what ministries you're involved in. You're nevertheless totally alone because you've only been welcomed as a saint. And for you to experience true community and fellowship, you've got to be welcomed as a sinner. And I want Harbin's church to be a church where that can happen where you can be welcomed as a sinner, and not just as a sinner, but as a fellow sinner, because we're all right there with you, struggling and stumbling and fighting and failing and getting back up again. You don't need to be alone. Let's fight the fight of faith together, and among the weapons we'll use against our sin is mutual confession, dragging those things out of the darkness and bringing them into the light where they begin to lose their power and their hold on you. So a faith that works together as the people of God uh, are leaning on the ministry of their shepherds, uh, as the people of God are accountable to one another through honest confession. The next thing is, is that the people of the church are caring for one another through mutual prayer. Verse 16 again, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So now we learn that the ministry of prayer isn't just restricted to the elders. James exhorts the whole church to be praying for one another that you may be healed. Notice that kind of language, that you may be healed. That's again often connected to a spiritual healing and restoration. Now, should we be praying for one another's physical health? Absolutely. Y'all, I just sent out an email to you, you know, the other day about physical challenges in the family and, and, and saying, church, be praying for these things. Nothing wrong with that. But James's primary concern here is for repentance and spiritual renewal among his readers. And he says it's going to happen through mutual confession of sin and mutual prayer. 
And so that means that your prayer life needs to include times where you're consciously stepping out of yourself and out of your life to think about others and pray for them. So let me ask you this. How many of you have spent this week praying for other people in this church? You don't have to say anything out loud. Some of you probably don't want to say anything out loud. But how much time have you spent praying this week for other people in this church? 15 minutes? Five minutes? Have you spent a minute doing it? So many times I hear people talking about how prayer is so hard. It's a common struggle among Christians. I know exactly what that's like in my own life. And I think one of the reasons why it's so hard for us to pray is because it's spiritual warfare. We have an enemy. We have the devil who is well aware of the power of prayer and who fears the prayers of God's people. And I think one of Satan's most successful schemes has been to minimize, or in the case of some, totally eliminate our prayer lives through distractions, through tempting us to unbelief or laziness. If you barely prayed this week, guess what? You fell into the trap. And Satan wants to trap you because he knows what James tells us in verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And then James gives us an example. He gives us the prophet Elijah. Now, if anyone in the first century Jewish mindset um, uh, was revered for spiritual power, it was Elijah. He would have been at the top of the list. He is associated with amazing miracles and incredible demonstrations of the power of God. And in 1 Kings chapter 17 and 18, we're told about this drought that God sends to the land of Israel to, to discipline them for their sins, but we're not told specifically in Kings that Elijah actually prayed about this. We're not told about this ever in the Bible until we get to here to James chapter 5, where he says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And so we look at this, and we think, man, that is incredible. You mean he prayed and the weather changed? Yep. But that's not the most surprising thing about this. The most surprising thing is what James says in verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. What's the point? The point is that Elijah was just a regular, ordinary person. He's exactly like you. He's exactly like me. He wasn't superhuman. He had the same Uh, struggles, the same kinds of weaknesses, the same flaws as we do. He battled depression and discouragement and fearful anxiety just as we do. Read the story of Elijah and you can see those weaknesses. And then you might ask, well, if that's the case, if he's so weak, how in the world could Elijah pray and a drought come and then later pray and a drought end? And and the answer is because the power doesn't lie in Elijah. Uh, Elijah in his praying petitions the one who has the power. That's the whole point. It's not about Elijah, and it's not about you. It's about the one that you're coming to. That's why the devil fears your prayers. In James chapter 2, James said, the demons believe in God and they tremble. So having power in prayer isn't just limited to prophets or pastors. Instead, the one who experiences power in prayer is who? In verse 16, we're told, it's the righteous person. And who are the righteous? Well, ironically, the righteous are those who have confessed that they have not been righteous. 
that they are sinners who have broken God's law, but they trust in Jesus, who is the true righteous one, who died on a cross, taking their sins upon him and giving his righteousness to believers so that guilty sinners uh, become legally righteous in God's courtroom of justice. But I'd be remiss to say that it's not just your legal righteousness before God, but your day-to-day practical righteousness that is connected to power in prayer as well. And so David says in Psalm 66, If I had cherished iniquity, sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. In other words, the person who is living in willful, concealed, ongoing, undealt with sin can cut himself off from experiencing powerful prayer. It's not that God only hears the prayers of perfect people. If that was the case, then no one would be able to have a powerful prayer life. But on the other hand, ongoing, undealt with sin can totally compromise your prayers. What's the... uh, What's the other verse uh, in, um, uh, the Apostle Peter writes about in the New Testament talking about husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, you know, treating, her, treating her with honor, and then he says, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The, or- the ordinary believer, who though far from perfect, is nevertheless striving to live for the Lord, his prayers and her prayers have great power. So it's not about the perfect person having powerful prayers, but it is the one who is leaning into God, pressing into the things of God, seeking to follow God, and when they stumble, they get up, they keep going, they keep pressing forward. It is that man of God, that woman of God, who can experience real power in prayer. Uh, the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. So that's the key. Praying according to God's will. That's the key. And I think that explains Elijah's powerful prayer. Elijah, being a prophet of God, had received a word from God about the ending of that drought. You can read about that in 1 Kings 18. And so I think if you fit 1 Kings 18 together with James 5, what do you have? You have Elijah praying according to the word, will, and promises of God, and when he does that, amazing things happen. There is a mysterious connection between God's will and prayer. On the one hand, God's absolutely sovereign, and He does whatever He pleases. On the other hand, the Bible's clear that God responds to the prayers of His people. Uh, He has ordained not just the ends, but He's also ordained the means, which are often your prayers. There are things that won't happen unless we pray for them to happen. Indeed, that was James's point in chapter 4 when he rebuked the churches for their prayerlessness, and he said, you do not have because you do not ask. And whenever you do ask, you don't receive because you're asking for selfish reasons. You see, so often we have a twofold problem with prayer, according to James. Number one, we just don't pray. And then number two, when we do finally get around to praying, the prayers are self-focused, self-referential prayers that aren't interested in God's will being done, but in our own. And so going back to chapter 5, I think this is the key to understanding the prayer of faith that James mentions in verse 15. The, what, what is the prayer of faith? The prayer of faith is not, is not you having faith in the strength of your own faith. And it's not about It's not about you being certain of what should happen and then creating your preferred reality through your prayers. 
Like, like I can pray for whatever I want, and as long as, as, long as I just kind of believe hard enough, then I can make these things happen, no matter what it is. Some people believe that that's what prayer is. Instead, the prayer of faith is a prayer that is focused on God's plan and God's will and God's agenda more than your own. It's a prayer rooted in the Word and promises of God, just like Elijah's prayer was. So to the degree that you know and understand and discern and trust the will of God is the degree that you will see great power in your prayers. And James wants us in the church to be praying powerful prayers for one another. Uh, Praying for rain to end a drought is amazing. But praying for a church and seeing God powerfully work and change lives is an even greater thing, I think. But if, but if if the prayer of the righteous has great power as it is working, then we should expect very incredible things when we pray. And whatever we pray for that is in the will of God will come to pass. That's the promise. So if we're really going to see the power of God unleashed through our prayers, impacting the lives of others, then we're going to pray for our brothers and sisters in our church according to God's will. Now, Uh, Again, going back to the healing example, yes, pray for people to be healed miraculously, do that, but I don't know if that's God's will for you or not, to be immediately miraculously healed. You you can't even read the book of James in its context and, and walk away from that conclusion that that's always God's will for somebody to be healed. But there are things that I see in God's Word that I know are God's will for you. I don't have to guess about these things. I know that it's God's will for you to be sanctified and holy. I know that it's God's will that you would experience increasing victory over that sin that you are afraid to confess. I know that it's His will that you begin to experience victory through that confession. I know that it's God's will that you be patient and steadfast in your trials of various kinds, and I know that God loves to give strength to the weak and weary soul. So we we ought to be praying regularly for those things for one another. So again, I sent out that email the other day, uh, pray, pray for healing for my, for my family. Yes, please do that. But, but pray twice as much, though, for the things in, in His Word that you know are God's will for me and for, for Dana and for my family, uh, that, that we would grow closer to God, that we would be more conformed to the image of Christ in the middle of our trials and tribulations. Be praying for those things all the more. And if you need help with prayer and how to do it, and what words to say. Uh, there are prayers in the Bible that, that can help you, and, and, and you can make those prayers your own. So, for example, a completely legitimate prayer for us to look at is uh, Paul's prayer to uh, the Colossian church in Colossians chapter 1. And, and he prayed this uh, for the church. He said, "'We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There, there, are, there are a lot of things packed in that prayer, aren't there? There's some good things in there. Wouldn't that be a good prayer to pray for a weary, discouraged believer in this church or for anyone in this church? Uh, Have you ever prayed a prayer like that before for anyone? Why not? Will you start? 
What would happen if we began to pray like that for each other every single day? Uh, Do you think that it would change things? Do you think we notice a difference? Uh, Do you think it would strengthen our church? I have no doubt about it that it would. In our next membership meeting, I was planning on making available hard copies of the church directory so you can, you can have that and you can use that as a prayer guide, uh, praying for a few names on that list every day. And if you don't want to wait till then, come see me, come see Marietta, we'll get you a copy. Use it for personal prayer uh, or use it for uh, prayer with your family as you're gathered around the, the dinner table and just pick a few names and be praying for, for the people on that list. How about this? Start coming to uh, adult Bible study next week from 9.30 to 10.30, where during that time we're going to set aside some time for corporate prayer uh, for the church. Uh, Men, consider coming to monthly prayer meetings. We do these every month. We're having another one next week uh, where we pray for one another, and we pray for the church, and we provide opportunities for confession as well. Ladies, sign up for the monthly psalm study to learn about prayer and to to pray with and for other ladies. Or or get that that, that Prayer Mate app installed on your phone that I was telling you about last week, the the Prayer Mate app. It's a wonderful app. You don't even have to pay for it. Uh, and, and, And you can get all the names of all the people in Harbin's Church on that app, and every day you can be praying for people, and you won't leave anybody out. James says you do not have because you do not ask. I'm asking you this morning, will you start asking? Will you commit yourself to regular, persistent prayer for the people in this church by name? And by the way, that's going to inevitably facilitate more unity and more community in our church because you'll be more motivated to know the people that you're praying for. You're not just going to be content forever with just a bunch of names and who are these people? I have no idea. I don't know what they need. I don't know how to pray for them. You're going to be eventually asking them, Listen, what's going on in your life? How can I serve you through the ministry of prayer? I know that if we committed ourselves to more prayer prayer for one another, that there would be explosive results here in this church. Again, going back to Thomas Manton, he said that it is the duty of Christians to relieve one another by their prayers. Oh, that we would pay attention to this neglected duty. Not praying for others is unloving. Not to expect it from others is pride. Do not stand alone. Two, indeed many, are better than one. Joint striving mutually for the good of each other makes the work prosper. Or consider what Charles Spurgeon said. He wrote, Believer, you have a mighty engine in your hand. Use it well. Use it constantly. Use it with faith. And you shall surely be a benefactor to your brothers. When you have the king's ear, speak to him for the suffering members of his body. When you're favored to draw very near to his throne and the king says to you, ask and I will give you what you will, let your petitions be not for yourself alone, but for the many who need his aid. So Harbin's church, pray for one another that you might be healed. The next point is that the church is to be pursuing one another with a persistent love, pursuing one another with a persistent love. James says in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That word wander in the Greek is planao, and we get our word planet from it. 
Uh, a planet seems stationary when you look up, look at, up in the sky and you see it. But if you pay really close attention, over time its position shifts and changes, and, and it leaves the place that it originally was. And, and James recognizes that in any church, this is going to be a danger with people. There will be those who at one time seem to be faithful and zealous, standing firm in their Christian commitment, following after Christ, but over time, they begin to wander. And often the wandering is not quick and dramatic, like, but, but often it's, it's like a planet. There's a drift, Uh, There's a trajectory moving further and further away, and so James here is describing a person who in their doctrine and their lifestyle begins to drift off course away from the truth of Scripture. And I think it's very noteworthy here that James expects the church to actually be be paying attention and noticing the drift. You're not going to notice any wanderers if you're not paying attention to other people in the congregation. Uh, The people of God are supposed to be looking out for one another. And by the way, this is so anti-American. Isn't it the private business of the church member to do whatever he wants and lives however he chooses? No. It's not. The church isn't supposed to be made up of isolated, disconnected individuals. Uh, We are to be a connected community. Guess what? You are your brother's keeper. You are your sister's keeper. What happens to you impacts me and vice versa, and and we are tethered together. And if we are members of the same church, guess what? How you live actually is my business, and how I live is actually your business. You see, a more American way of doing things would just be to respect everyone's privacy. Uh, That's how they want to live, and if they're departing from the faith, if they're leaving the faith, oh well, that's, that's their thing. I'm not going to encroach on that. But James says that's not how you are supposed to respond. If someone in your midst wanders, that person needs to be pursued. And it doesn't have to be the pastor that is doing the pursuing. Well, Deemer, that's your job. Oh, not not exclusively. James here is speaking to the church in general. If anyone wanders and someone brings them back, he doesn't say if anyone wanders and the elders bring them back. Although certainly as uh, the elders in the congregation, as shepherds, are, are, are lead shepherds and, and certainly lead pursuers of, uh, of wanderers, but they're also leading by example because this, this is what everyone in the church is supposed to be doing, for everyone. Uh, the, the, the church as a whole has a collective responsibility to go after the wanderers. If you notice a wanderer before I do, you don't need to come to me and say, hey, Deemer, do something about this. That, that happens sometimes in, in, in church life where somebody notices a problem in church with, with somebody and they, and they come up to the, to the pastor uh, and, and they want me to, want me to fix it. Uh, if you notice before I do, you go and do something about it. You don't need my permission and you don't need my authority. Bi- Bible right here gives you permission to do that. If you notice someone who hasn't been in church for a while, then pursue that person. Call them. Check up on them. I notice I, notice I haven't seen you in a while. How are you doing? What, what, what's, what's going on? Or if, if uh, you discover this person is embracing significant doctrinal um, uh, er- error, uh, wandering away from the, the, the core elements of the, of the gospel or biblical authority, if there's a pattern of rebellion in their lives, go talk to them. And, and, and how do you do that? Well, you, you do it lovingly and you, you do it gently. 
Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Galatians 6.1. That's how you do it. You speak the truth. You speak the truth in love. You go through the, uh, the steps of church discipline in Matthew 18. You, you address the wanderer privately and, and, and in smaller groups, uh, but if they continue to wander and drift, and eventually the entire church is brought into the situation because it is everybody's business, and if the person still refuses to repent at that time, then and only then and only after, in most cases, lots of patience and care and, and attempts to restore, only then do you remove such a person from membership. So the whole church is to be spending significant time and effort to bring back the wanderer. It's a really big deal. It's not optional. It's huge. Why? Because, James says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What James is getting at is that the wandering believer may not really be a believer. Uh, of course, it is possible for a genuine believer to go through a time of rebellion and then eventually come back, uh, but you actually can't know that for sure because you don't know the person's heart. And, and if his soul really is on the verge of death, it means the person, at least in this example, the person's not really a believer. Uh, he was in the church, but he was unconverted. And so if he drifts, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to be callously ignored or cast aside. He needs to be lovingly evangelized. And through that process of engaging with the wanderer, that person may actually truly repent and genuinely receive Christ by faith and then experience real conversion and then really be a part of the church. And amazingly, James says that you can be a part of this. You can be a part of God's gracious rescue mission to save that person's soul from death. And if the person was a genuine believer after all, then you can be a part of God's plan to help that person persevere in the faith. You have won back your brother or your sister. The point here is that sanctification isn't a personal project. It's a community project. There's never been a strong, mature Christian outside of the fellowship, outside of the community of God's people, just kind of off on their own in isolation. We need one another. Uh, We are to to, um, uh, call one another to right doctrine and right living, to stir up one another, as the book of Hebrews says, to love and good works. We don't write off wanderers. We, we, We are to love them. We're to care about them. We're to go after them to be an agent of God's grace and rescue in their lives. And I don't think any of this, though, is going to happen if we're not a church that first is confessing and praying for one another. Uh, If we don't have a loving, transparent, and mutually caring community already in place at our church where there are gospel-centered relationships, then the wanderer probably is doomed. (laughs) Or, or, Or if he's helped, it's not because of us. And I think the church will be weak and lack power and and may even die if we're not having this kind of community in place. Uh, Elise Fitzpatrick wrote a book that some of the ladies in our church have been going through. It's called Because He Loves Me. And, uh, And she wrote something I found to be very profound and very challenging. She said, as I've traveled around the country speaking at churches, I've discovered that the kind of biblical relationship the New Testament calls us to is almost non-existent. I recently spoke at a conference, and when I asked for a show of hands of those who were in a biblical relationship with others to whom they regularly confessed sin, expected accountability, and regularly confronted the sins of those, uh, of those same others, only a smattering of hands went up. 
She goes on to write, the, the kind of fellowship I'm enjoying flies right in the face of our American individualism and our desire for privacy. We don't want anyone poking around in our affairs, and we certainly don't want to be accused of poking about in someone else's. The, this idolatry of privacy and individualism, she says, is one of the greatest detriments to sanctification in the church today. God has placed us in a family because we don't grow very well on our own. We need the encouragement, correction, and loving involvement of others who are willing to risk everything for the sake of the beauty of His bride. Wow. That knocked me over. The idolatry of privacy and individualism. That's something worth thinking about and praying about this week. And we need the encouragement, correction, and loving involvement of others who are willing to risk everything for the sake of the beauty of His bride. The church is not just an organization. It's the bride of Christ. You individually are not the bride of Christ. We collectively the church is the bride of Christ, and we should care about the beauty, the holiness, the faithfulness of the bride because Jesus cares about it. Jesus went all out for His bride, dying for the, the sins that made her ugly and unpresentable to God, washing, uh, washing away the stain of her guilt through the blood of His sacrifice on the cross. And if you're here as an unbeliever, I pray that you would turn from your sins, you believe in Jesus, so that you might be a part of something bigger and better than just yourself on your own, comfortably wandering away into eternal death to hell in private. And if you're here as a believer, then remember that your life is not your own. You are more than just an individual Christian. You're now part of the bride of Christ, and you're to care about the beauty of His bride, caring about your own growth and love and holiness and purity, and caring about that for others in the church. And all of that happens in the context of community, as we, the people of God, uh, uh, walk side by side, arm in arm, sometimes fighting not face-to-face against each other, but back-to-back against the, the dark powers and principalities that seek to drag us into sin and discouragement and despair. The Apostle Paul writes down at the bottom there, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all, always seek to do good to one another and to everyone, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Why? Because while we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, we are saved by faith alone. We are not saved by faith that is alone. Faith works, and faith works together. Let's pray.